I am reading to you James Harriet's All Creatures Great and Small, St. Martin's Press, 1972, and we are on chapter 45. Thank you, Lord God, that in this life we have other people to walk with us. We have families that are part of our lives. We have, um, many of us have siblings, and we know, God, that you formed and knit us together in our mother's womb. So let us delight to serve and to make you known all the days we have on this earth, we pray. Because of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. As I sat at breakfast, I looked out at the autumn mist dissolving in the early sunshine. It was going to be another fine day, but there was a chill in the old house this morning. A shiveriness as though a cold hand had reached out to remind us that summer had gone and the hard months lay just ahead. It says here, Siegfried said, adjusting his copy of the Derby and Holton Times with care against the coffee pot that farmers have no feeling for the animals. I buttered a piece of toast and looked across at him. Cruel, you mean? Well, not exactly. But this chap maintains that to a farmer, livestock are purely commercial. There's no sentiment in his attitude towards them, no affection. Well, it wouldn't do if they were all like poor Kit Bilton, would it? They'd all go mad. Kit was a lorry driver who, like so many of the working men of Derby, kept a pig at the bottom of his garden for family consumption. The snag was that when killing time came, Kit wept for three days. I happened to go into his house on one of these occasions and found his wife and daughter hard at it, cutting up the meat for pies and brawn, while Kit huddled miserably by the kitchen fire, his eyes swimming with tears. He was a huge man who could throw a 12-stone sack of meal onto his wagon with a jerk of his arms, but he seized my hand in his and sobbed at me, I can't bear it, Monsieur Harriet. He was like a Christian, was that pig, just like a Christian. No, I agree, Siegfried leaned over and sawed off a slice of Mrs. Hall's home-baked bread. But Kit's a real farmer. This article is about people who own large numbers of animals. The question is, is it possible for such men to become emotionally involved? Can the dairy farmer, milking maybe 50 cows, become really fond of any of them? Or are they just milk-producing units? It's an interesting point, I said, and I think you've put your finger on it with the numbers. You know, there are a lot of our farmers up in the high country who have only a few stock. They always have names for their cows. Daisy, Mabel. I even came across one called Kipperlugs the other day. I do think these small farmers have an affection for their animals, but I don't see how the big men can possibly have. Siegfried rose from the table and stretched luxuriously. You're probably right. Anyway... I'm sending you to see a really big man this morning. John Skipton of Denneby Close. He's got some tooth rasping to do. A couple of old horses losing condition. You'd better take all the instruments. It might be anything. I went through to the little room, down the passage, and surveyed the tooth instruments. I always felt at my most medieval when I was caught up in large animal dentistry. And in the days of the draft horse, it was a regular task. One of the commonest jobs was knocking the wolf teeth out of young horses. I have no idea how it got its name, but you found the little wolf tooth just in front of the molars, and if a young horse was doing badly, it always got the blame. It was no good the vets protesting that such a minute vestigial object couldn't possibly have any effect on the horse's health, and that the trouble was probably due to worms. The farmers were adamant. The tooth had to be removed. We did this by having the horse backed into a corner, placing the forked end of a metal rod against the tooth, <clears throat> and giving a sharp tap with an absurdly large wooden mallet. 
Since the tooth had no proper root, the operation was not particularly painful, but the horse still didn't like it. We usually had a couple of forefeet waving around our ears at each tap. And the annoying part was that after we had done the job and pointed out to the farmer that we had only performed this bit of magic to humor him, the horse would take an immediate turn for the better and thrive consistently from then on. Farmers are normally reticent about our successful efforts for fear we might put a bit more on the bill, but in these cases, they cast aside all caution. They would shout at us across the marketplace, Hey, remember that Oz you knocked wolf teeth out of? Well, he never looked back. It capped him. I looked again with distaste at the tooth instruments, the vicious forceps with two feet long arms, sharp jawed shears, mouth gags, hammers and chisels, files and rasps. It was rather like a quiet corner in the Spanish Inquisition. We kept a long wooden box with a handle for carrying the things, and I staggered out to the car with a fair selection. Denneby Close was not just a substantial farm. It was a monument to a man's endurance and skill. The fine old house, the extensive buildings, the great sweep of lush grass along the lower slopes of the fell were all proof that old John Skipton had achieved the impossible. He had started as an uneducated farm laborer, and he was now a wealthy landowner. The miracle hadn't happened easily. Old John had a lifetime of grinding toil behind him that would have killed most men. A lifetime with no room for a wife or family or creature comforts. But there was more to it than that. There was a brilliant acumen in agricultural matters that had made the old man a legend in the district. When out the world goes one road, I go to other was one of his quoted sayings. And it is true that the Skipton Farms had made money in the hard times when others were going bankrupt. Denneby was only one of John's farms. He had two large arable places of about 400 acres each lower down the dale. He had conquered, but to some it seemed that he had himself been conquered in the process. He had battled against the odds for so many years and driven himself so fiercely that he couldn't stop. He could be enjoying all kinds of luxuries now, but he just hadn't the time. They said that the poorest of his workers lived in better style than he did. I paused as I got out of the car and stood gazing at the house as though I had never seen it before, and I marveled again at the elegance which which had withstood over 300 years of the harsh climate. People came a long way to see Denneby close and take photographs of the graceful manor with its tall, leaded windows, the massive chimneys towering over the old moss-grown tiles, or to wander through the neglected garden and climb up the sweep of steps to the entrance with its wide stone arch over the great studded door. There should have been a beautiful woman in one of those pointed hats peeping out from that mullioned casement, or a cavalier in ruffles and horse pacing beneath the high walls with its pointed copings. But there was just old John stumping impatiently towards me, his tattered, buttonless coat secured only by a length of binder twine round his middle. Come in here a minute, young man, he cried. I've got a little bill to pay you. He led the way round to the back of the house, and I followed pondering on the odd fact that it was always a little bill in Yorkshire. We went in through a flagged kitchen to a room which was graceful and spacious but furnished only with a table, a few wooden chairs, and a collapsed sofa. The old man bustled over to the mantelpiece and fished out a bundle of papers from behind the clock. He leafed through them, threw an envelope onto the table, then produced a checkbook and slapped it down in front of me. I did the usual, 
took out the bill, made out the amount on the check, and pushed it over for him to sign. He wrote with a careful concentration, the small-featured, weathered face bent low, the peak of the old cloth cap almost touching the pen. His trousers had ridden up his legs as he sat down, showing the skinny calves and bare ankles. There were no socks underneath the heavy boots. When I had pocketed the check, John jumped to his feet. We'll have to walk down to the river. Osses are down there. He left the house almost at a trot. I eased my box of instruments from the car boot. It was a funny thing, but whenever I had heavy equipment to lug about, my patients were always a long way away. This box seemed to be filled with lead, and it wasn't going to get any lighter on the journey down through the pastured, the walled pastures. The old man seized a pitchfork, stabbed it into a bale of hay, and hoisted it effortlessly over his shoulder. He set off again at the same brisk pace. We made our way down from one gateway to another, often walking diagonally across the fields. John didn't reduce speed, and I stumbled after him, puffing a little, and trying to put away the thought that it was at least fifty that he was at least fifty years older than me. About halfway down, we came across a group of men at the age-old task of walling. That is, repairing a gap in one of the dry stone walls which traced their patterns everywhere on the green slopes of the dales. <clears throat> one of the men looked up. Nice morning, Mr. Skipton, he sang out cheerfully. Bugger the morning. Get on with some work, grunted old John in reply, and the man smiled contentedly as though he had received a compliment. I was glad when we reached the flat land at the bottom. My arms seemed to have been stretched by several inches, and I could feel a trickle of sweat on my brow. Old John appeared unaffected. He flicked the fork from his shoulder, and the bale thudded on the grass. The two horses turned toward us at the sound. They were standing fetlock deep in the pebbly shallows just beyond a little beach, which merged into the green carpet of turf. Nose to tail, they had been rubbing their chins gently along each other's backs, unconscious of our approach. A high cliff overhanging the far bank made a perfect windbreak, while on either of us, side of us, clumps of oak and beech blazed in the autumn sunshine. They're in a nice spot, Mr. Skipton, I said. Aye, they can keep cool in the hot weather, and they've the barn when winter comes. John pointed to a low, thick-walled building with a single door. They can come and go as they please. The sound of his voice brought the horses out of the river at a stiff trot, and as they came near, you could see they really were old. The mare was a chestnut, and the gelding was a light bay, but their coats were so flecked with gray that they almost looked like groans. This was most pronounced on their faces, where the sprinkling of white hairs, the sunken eyes, and the deep cavity above the eyes gave them a truly venerable appearance. For all that, they capered around John with a fair attempt at skittishness, stamping their feet, throwing their heads about, pushing his cap over his eyes with their muzzles. Get by, leave off, he shouted, daft dog beggars. But he tugged absently at the mare's forelock and ran his hand briefly along the neck of the gelding. When did they last do any work, I asked. Oh, about 12 years ago, I reckon. I stared at John. 12 years? And they have been down here all that time. Aye, just laking about down here and retired like. They've earned it all in all. For a few moments, he stood silent, shoulders hunched, hands deep in the pockets of his coat. Then he spoke quietly as if to himself. They were two slaves when I was a slave. He turned and looked at me, and for a revealing moment, I read in the pale blue eyes something of the agony and struggle he sh had shared with the animals. But twelve years. How old are they, anyway? John's mouth twisted up at one corner. Well, you're the vet. You tell me. I stepped forward confidently, my mind buzzing with Galvine's groove, shape of marks, 
degree of slope in the rest. I grasped the unprotesting upper lip of the mare and looked at her teeth. Good golly, I gasped. I've never seen anything like this. The incisors were immensely long and projecting forward till they met at an angle of about 45 degrees. There were no marks at all. They had long since gone. I laughed and turned back to the old man. It's no good. I'd only be guessing. You'll have to tell me. Well, she's about 30 and Gelding's a year or two younger. She's had 15 grand foals and never ailed out except a bit of teeth trouble. We've had them rasped a time or two, and it's time they were done again, I reckon. They're both losing ground and dropping bits of half-chewed hay from their mouse. Gelding's the worst. Has a right job champing his grub. I put my hand into the mare's mouth, grasped her tongue, and pulled it out to one side. A quick exploration of the molars with my hand revealed what I suspected. The outside edges of the upper teeth were overgrown and jagged and were irritating the cheeks while the inside edges of the lower molars were in a similar state and were slightly excoriating the tongue. I'll soon make her more comfortable, Mr. Skipton. With those sharp edges rubbed off, she'll be as good as new. Got the rasp out, I got the rasp out of my vast box, held the tongue in one hand, and worked the rough surface along the teeth, checking occasionally with my fingers till the points had been sufficiently reduced. That's about it, I said after a few minutes. I don't want to make them smooth or she won't be able to grind her food. John grunted. Good enough. Now we'll have a look to other. There's something far wrong with him. I had a feel at the gelding's teeth. Just the same as the mare. Soon put him to right, too. But pushing at the rasp, I had an uncomfortable feeling that something was not quite right. The thing wouldn't go fully to the back of the mouth. Something was stopping it. I stopped rasping and explored again. Reaching with my fingers as far as I could, I came up with something very strange, something which shouldn't have been there at all. It was like a great chunk of bone projecting down from the roof of the mouth. It was time I had a proper look. I got on my pocket torch and shone it over the back of the tongue. It was easy to see the trouble now. The last upper molar was overlapping the lower one, resulting in a gross overgrowth of the posterior border. The result was a saber-like barb about three inches long stabbing down into the tender tissue of the gum. That would have to come off right now. My jauntiness vanished, and I suppressed a shudder. It meant using the horrible shears, those great long-handled things with the screw operated by a crossbar. Ugh. They gave me the willies because I am one of those people who can't bear to watch anybody blowing up a balloon. And this is the same sort of thing, only worse. You fasten the sharp blades of the shears onto the tooth and began to turn the bar slowly. Slowly. Soon the tooth began to groan and creak under the tremendous leverage. And you knew that any second it would break off. And when it did, something like somebody letting off a rifle in your ear. It was like somebody letting off a rifle in your ear. That was when all hell usually broke loose. But mercifully, this was a quiet old horse, and I wouldn't expect him to start dancing around on his hind legs. There was no pain for the horse because the overgrown part had no nerve supply. It was the noise that caused the trouble. Whew. Returning to my crate, I produced a dreadful instrument, and with it, a houseman's gag, which I inserted on the incisor, and opened on its ratchet till the mouth gaped wide. Everything was easy to see then, and of course, there it was. A great prong at either side of the mouth, exactly like the first. Great, great. Now I had to chop. Now I had two to chop off. 
The old horse stood patiently, almost eyes almost closed, as though he had seen it all and nothing in the world was going to bother him. I went through the motions with my toes curling, and when the sharp crack came, the white-bordered eyes opened wide, but only in mild surprise. He never even moved. When I did the other side, he paid no attention at all. In fact, with a gag prizing his jaws apart, he looked as that exactly as though he was yawning with boredom. As I bundled the tools away, John picked up the bony sp- spicules from the grass and studied them with interest. Well, poor our beggar. Good job I got you along, young man. I reckon he'll feel a lot better now. On the way back, old John, relieved of his bail, was able to go twice as fast, and he stumped his way up the hill at a furious pace, using the fork as a staff. I panted along in the rear, <laughs> changing the box from hand to hand every few minutes. <clears throat> About halfway up, the thing slipped out of my grasp, and it gave me a chance to stop for a breather. As the old man muttered impatiently, I looked back and could just see the two horses. They had returned to the shallows and were playing each other, chasing each other jerkily, their feet splashing in the water. The cliff made a dark backcloth to the picture, the shining river, the trees glowing bronze and gold, and the sweet green of the grass. Back in the farmyard, John paused awkwardly. He nodded once or twice, then said, Thank you, young man, then turned abruptly and walked away. I was dumping the box thankfully into the boot when I saw the man who had spoken to us on the way down. He was sitting, cheerfully as ever, in a sunny corner, back against a pile of sacks, pulling his dinner packet from an old army satchel. You had been down to see the pensioners then. By God, John should know the way. Regular visitor, is he? Regular. Every day. God sends you to see to all the feller plodding down there. Rain, snow, or blow, never misses. And allus has summit with them. Bag of corn, straw for their bedding. And he's done that for 12 years. The man unscrewed his thermos flask and poured himself a cup of black tea. Aye, them osses have done a stroke of work all that time, and he could have got good money for them from the horse flesh merchants. Rummin, isn't it? You're right, I said. It's a rummin. How, just how rum it was occupied my thoughts on the way back to the surgery. I went back to my conversation with Siegfried that morning. We had just about decided that the man with a lot of animals couldn't be expected to feel affection for individuals among them. But those buildings back there were full of John Skipton's animals. He must have hundreds. Yet what made him trail down that hillside every day in all weathers? Why had he filled the last years of those two old horses with peace and beauty? Why had he given them a final ease and comfort which he had withheld from himself? It could only be love. Love you guys. Have a great rest of your day.